Holy Father, we thank you for this great gift you have given to us this one day every week to come away from the ordinary activities of life, to enjoy the fellowship of the saints, to have a part in your worship, which so nourishes and strengthens and renews our hearts and minds. We pray that it shall. We pray that you would grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit working in our midst and in our hearts to draw us up to the sanctuary of the Most High, to encounter you this morning, to realize your presence, to feel the force of this glorious truth in our hearts. May we, O God, by your grace and with your help, offer you worship that is pleasing in your sight. It is our fondest desire. Hear and answer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We will sing of the mercies of the Lord and of his faithfulness forever. That uh, stretch of psalms from 96 to 100 are psalms of that type. 98, perhaps the greatest among them. You know the 98th psalm as the hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come, that we sing every Christmas time. But uh, here is a more... A more literal metrical version of the psalm itself, very typical of those psalms of praise, calling on the whole world that belongs to God to praise Him for His great salvation. The hymn number 16, Psalm 98, let us worship God.
Be seated, please, and on to prayer and the confession of our sins. Now, God's people, together from their hearts, forgive us our sins, O Lord. Forgive us the sins of our youth and the sins of our age, the sins of our soul and the sins of our body, our secret and our whispering sins, presumptuous and our careless sins, the sins we have done to please ourselves and the sins we have done to please others. Forgive us the sins that we know and the sins that we know not. Forgive them, O Lord. Forgive them all because of your great goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Apostle Paul had been accused of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And in defending his actions in the first chapter of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he writes this. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Two things the Apostle Paul says. One is you can count on God's word. He keeps his promises. Every one of them he will keep. The second is he is guaranteed those promises by the acts, the work, the atonement of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. If we had less confidence than we should have in the certainty of his promise, the assurance of his word, then we can bank instead on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how certain our forgiveness is. So, it is only right that we should say our Amen. We should agree. We should admit that these things are true, that our sins have been forgiven because we have sought their forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So stand to your feet and give your Amen to the promises of God, giving answer to this question from the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God because of Christ's atonement, will never hold against me any of my sins, nor my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, in his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. Let's continue to confess that faith and give thanks to God in Jesus Christ for that forgiveness. With this lovely hymn of Horatius Bonar, you can... Find it set to the music we're going to use in this print, off-print in your order of service. Let the Lord Jesus before you and sing to him.
Be seated, please, and turn, please, in the English Standard Version, which you can find in front of you there in the pew, to Matthew chapter 6. We've been using the Sermon on the Mount of late for our unison readings of God's law in worship, and this morning we have come to chapter 6. We're reading the first 14 verses of the chapter, the first two paragraphs. Reading this law of God together, we and worship, we make it, as it were, our promise of obedience, loyalty to the Lord in return for his mercy and love for us. Reading together. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left know what your right hand is doing. Your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now add to the commitment of your voice and your heart, the worship of your life, your tithes and offerings.
for those uh, 12 and under, if you can come and tell me after the service uh, what was the hymn um, in our hymnal set to that music, variations of which Mr. Bechtel just played. I've got a package of sugarless gum for you in my, in my uh, desk drawer. Twelve and under. No help from those over twelve. Um, we have not yet addressed the Lord by his triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Stand to sing. phrase first in the heart only then on the lips Joshua 17, 14, through the 10th verse of chapter 18. We said from the beginning of our studies in Joshua on the strength of statements the scripture itself makes elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews, uh, in a number of places and elsewhere. Uh, that the history of the conquest provides a pattern or paradigm of salvation. Israel got Canaan the way sinners get heaven. Israel's experiences upon entering the promised land were like the experiences that every Christian has in seeking to obtain eternal life in a world like ours. We've learned in this way such lessons as the necessity of practicing our faith in the promises of God, of how we gain strength for living by acknowledging God's blessings, our duty to do lifelong battle with our sins, however entrenched they may be. This morning it's more of the same. Another lesson for the Christian life lies on the face of a text that narrates Israel's ongoing conquest of the land of Canaan. After the lengthy account of Judah's allotment in chapter 15, (coughs) chapters 16 and 17 provide the detail of the allotment for Ephraim and Manasseh, the two tribes of Joseph. After the boundaries have been described, we pick up the narrative in verse 14 of chapter 17. But notice the previous two verses, 12 and 13, which report that Manasseh did not drive the Canaanites out of their territory. They subjected them to forced labor, but they did not dispossess them of their land. They had the power to do so, but they lacked the will. How much, brothers and sisters, is that the story of our lives? We have in Christ the power, but too often we lack the will. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, Although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me. The people of Joseph 
indicate that uh, Ephraim and Manasseh are now together in the narrator's view. They're acting in concert. What they said (laughs) to Joseph, however, was not a good sign. They use the fact of God's great blessing to complain that they were not given more. Something is amiss in the attitude of the heart. We detect a whine in the remark of the men of Ephraim and Manasseh. Instead of being grateful for a large section of beautiful country that Yahweh is giving to them as a free gift, a gift they did not earn but which is now theirs nevertheless, they are finding flaws in the present as they open it. If you're a numerous people, Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. <coughs> Joshua exposes their attitude by telling them that there's land for the taking. All they have to do is take it. But it's natural for us, is it not, to want life to be easier than it is. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bashan and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Now, the Canaanites had chariots aplenty at the waters of Merom, and those chariots didn't do them any good, as we read or read in chapter 11. They, the Israelites destroyed the Canaanite coalition, chariots and all, in that battle. So why does this much smaller force of Canaanites seem so formidable still? Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Joshua is going to have none of this. They have plenty of land if they'll only possess it, and they certainly have the power to do so. Get off your duffs. Do what the Lord told you to do. Sure, there are obstacles. There are always obstacles. But we've been overcoming obstacles since we got into this land five years ago. The Lord will be with you. You have only to trust him. Remember what he did to the Egyptians, to Sion and to Og, to the Canaanite forces gathered in mass to repel us. Remember that he promised to give us the land. Don't stop now, for goodness sake. That's what... Joshua is saying to these two tribes. Now, as we move into chapter 18, it's important to notice that the first ten verses of the chapter are the center section of the allotment section of the book of Joshua, the pivot of this third major section of the four sections of the book of Joshua. Five tribes have so far received their allotments. Seven still have not. But the narrative of the tribal allotment is broken off for the account of Israel gathering at Shiloh, some 15 miles to the northwest of Jericho, to set up the tabernacle there, moving it from Gilgal, where it had been for some years, apparently. Shiloh was in Ephraim's territory and would remain, as you remember, an important religious center until the time of David. These ten verses, this center section, identifies the primary themes of this, of this um, section of the book. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Now, the same problem we encountered in the last verses of chapter 17, it reappears here. They have been lax in taking possession of the land. This is the time to do it. The military strength of the Canaanites has been broken. Don't let them recover their strength. Israel's failure at this point will explain her spiritual decay, which is the great subject of the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges. Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out, that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. 
They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord your God. The twenty-one men, therefore, three from each tribe, were in effect surveyors. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. There is some realism here for our lives as well. The tribes that had already received their inheritance were the most influential tribes, especially Judah and Ephraim, who would one day give their names to the two parts of a divided Israel. But in the kingdom of God, everybody counts. We're always tempted to think ourselves more important or better than others, even in the church where our theology is better, our worship is snazzier or something else. We have a greater influence. But the Bible rebukes our claim to spiritual snobbery, the right to it, at every turn. Our elitism. Every member of the people of God is an heir. And Joshua isn't going to be satisfied until all 12 tribes, even the least significant of them, have been settled in the land. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. Father in heaven, again, perhaps at first glance, not so promising a text, but all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for all manner of important things in the life of your people. So, Lord, from this scripture, teach us now. Build up our faith. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, crucial to an appreciation of what we have read this morning is the fact that the book of Joshua teaches us to regard Israel in this generation as a believing people. We read at the end of the book, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So what we encounter in the hesitation of the tribes of Israel to possess their portion of Canaan is a phenomenon of believing life. Indeed, we encounter here another in a long list of phenomena of believing life that are revealed in this account of the conquest of the promised land. We could, I suppose, give any number of names to the state of mind that is exposed in these verses, but certainly one word that describes it very well is doubt. Doubt is a fact of believing life. Some struggle more with it than others, to be sure, but few Christians escape it altogether, and many Christians through the ages have struggled with it all their lives. This is true even of men and women of whom we might, have not, we might not have expected any such thing. Robert Bruce, one of the commanding figures of the Scottish Reformation, had a long struggle as a Christian with his own unbelief, with doubt. He was speaking from his own experience when he said, as he frequently did, it is a great thing to believe in God. In one of his famous sermons on the Lord's Supper, preached in 1589, he says, However sure and certain it is that the faith of the best children of God is subject to doubt, it is just as sure and certain that doubt is never wholly extinct. Out of his own experience, he even says, As there is a great difference between a drunk man and a dead man, so there is a great difference between the faith that lies hid for a while and does not express itself, and the light that is utterly gone out. That was a man who had struggled with doubt for years speaking. 
No one had a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ than did Samuel Rutherford. But in speaking of the atheistic doubts with which good men are sometimes assailed, he added in a kind of sympathetic parenthesis, expertus loquor. I speak as an expert. Doubt is a problem both for new believers and for the most experienced of Christians. If you remember, Bunyan's Christian, who of course is throughout the Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan himself, telling us the story of his own Christian life, he does not encounter the man named Atheist until the very end, or near the very end of his journey. His name was Atheist, and he asked them, that is Christian and hopeful, whither they were going. We're going to Mount Sion, said Christian. Then Atheist fell into a very great laughter. What is the meaning of your laughter? asked Christian. I laugh to see what ignorant persons you are, to take upon you so tedious a journey, when yet you are like to have nothing but your travel for your pains. And on the conversation goes, Christian saying that he believes there is a life to come. An atheist saying he's been looking for it, but he's been unable to find it. Rabbi Duncan, whose aphorisms I quote to you so often because he was such an expert at getting to the nub of issues in the Christian life, was a man who struggled with doubt all his life, even to the very end. His doubts concerned whether he himself were truly a Christian. He didn't doubt that there was such a thing as salvation or that Jesus Christ was the Savior of sinners, but he struggled to believe that Jesus Christ was his Savior, that he had obtained salvation. As you can see, doubts can be of various kinds. Some struggle with uncertainty as to whether Christianity is true, whether the message of the Bible can be believed. Others, like John Duncan, struggle to know whether they themselves have obtained the salvation that is described in the word of God. They don't doubt the faith, but they doubt whether they have faith. Others doubt not salvation itself so much as whether the other promises that God has made to believers will ever come true for them. They doubt, in other words, whether they can count on the Lord being true to his word, this word and that word. In their case, and as any pastor discovers over time, there are varieties of each of these types of doubt. Now, doubt isn't all bad. There are doctrines in the Bible that seem designed to produce at least some measure and some experience of doubt. Doctrines such as divine election and the new birth. Can any Christian say that he has never wondered whether he is part of the elect, the chosen ones of God. Can any Christian with a conscience and some knowledge of the Bible say that she has never wondered whether she is a new creation in Christ, has really been born again, when so much of the old life obviously remains? Such doubts make us think harder about our faith, drive us to consider more carefully the teaching of the Bible, usually serve to humble us, all of which is good. As Augustine once put it, I doubt, therefore, truth exists. Think about it. Doubt makes no sense whatsoever. It is irrational if there isn't such a thing as truth. It certainly is so with me. Doubt helps clarify Confirm the truth. When doubts rise in my mind in one way or another, it sets me to thinking. And thinking, usually pretty quickly, sets me right. The struggle of many Christians with doubt is relatively painless. I number myself among those who have never struggled deeply or at length with doubt. I've had my doubts more fleeting than lasting. But they've never seriously shaken my faith. Cardinal Newman wrote in his autobiography, From the time I became a Catholic, I never have had one doubt. But Newman was a very self-confident person. And, of course, he was justifying his decision to leave the Anglican Church for the Roman Catholic Church. I think there would be very few Christians, in fact, who could say what he said, no matter what church they belonged to. I've had not one doubt. 
For others, doubt is a much heavier burden and one they have carried many a year long. Sometimes this struggle seems to be to their friends, their objective observers, genuinely irrational. They know the person. They know his faith. They know the strength of her convictions. They know their past. The doubt they chalk up, and no doubt in many cases rightly, to the person's makeup, to his or her personality, tendency toward depression, or lack of self-confidence. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, reminds us that in moments of depression or frustration, Shakespeare doubted his gifts as a poet and a playwright, and Raphael doubted his ability to paint. But we think of doubts of that kind as more like hypochondria, a kind of irrational and morbid self-suspicion or insecurity. They'll get over it. Because obviously Shakespeare could write a play, and Raphael could paint a painting. But in their case, and even more in the case of others whose doubts cannot be explained simply as the curse of their personality, the struggle with unbelief is a spiritual struggle of titanic, epic proportion. It's no fun. It is hard. It is very wearying to live in two minds and to have those two minds at war in one's own head. Doubts can be subtle, but still they are powerful things. They creep up on us or they assault us head on. They can result from outward experiences and circumstances or inward impressions that come upon us we know not why. Look at these two tribes here in Joshua 17 and the early verses of chapter 18. They didn't doubt that Yahweh existed. They were far from being atheists. For that matter, there were very few atheists in the ancient world. And to be frank, there aren't that many in the modern world. It's always been a stretch to account for personal reality without a personal God. These men are much more than mere theists, however. They've seen the Lord at work and powerfully. They don't doubt that they have taken the promised land by the power of Yahweh. They have served in battle after battle. They have conquered all their enemies. They have served faithfully in the Israelite army. And they have beheld the Lord fight on their behalf. Their doubts are of another kind. They come from weariness perhaps from some measure of resentment. They've probably, as we often do, exaggerated in their minds the quality of the portion of the promised land that had been been allotted to others, exaggerated in their minds how many Canaanites there actually were standing in their way. They fought their fill of battles. They just want peace and quiet. They want to get down to farming these beautiful farms that have been given to them. And now they are being told that they have to strap on their sword once again and do battle with an enemy that once again is better equipped than they are. One of these times, they're thinking to themselves, we're going to run into one chariot too many. Is it really worth, is it going to be worth it to do everything the Lord says? Whatever else this is, it's doubt. Doubt in the word of God, doubt in his presence, doubt in his promise, his willingness to bless and to reward and to keep his people. Doubt in the seriousness of the consequences of their disobedience. It's the challenge of faith, after all, and doubt is simply another name for a weak faith, that one must act on convictions he cannot see, he cannot taste, he cannot hear, he cannot touch. And to act in the promise of a reward that is often, if not usually, far from immediate. People can sometimes speak as if faith were an easy thing. All you have to do is believe. It is not. It is the most difficult thing of all. In fact, the Bible says faith is impossible to us. That's why it has to be a gift of God. So here is the believing life once again in Joshua. It's one thing to believe in the promised land. It's another thing 
So to believe in it that you risk for the umpteenth time your life and your health to ensure your full and unfettered possession of it. Doubt can be caused by any number of things, and we see several of the causes here. It can be caused by ingratitude, and the men of Joseph seem alarmingly ungrateful here. Every thoughtful Christian knows how easily he or she takes the Lord's goodness for granted. And how little and how rarely you and I really give thanks to God. Doubt is unhealthy. Gratitude, on the contrary, real thanksgiving is a sign of spiritual health. These people were being handed a large chunk of the land of milk and honey. And and instead of saying, wow, look at what the Lord has given us. They complain that they would have preferred a larger territory located more conveniently. Doubt breeds in the swamp of ingratitude because ingratitude blinds us to what is actually going on in our lives. To our place, our position, our condition in Christ. Instead of rejoicing over God's love, we start wondering why he hasn't done more for us. And once we have given ourselves to that thought, any doubt is possible. Doubt can as well be caused by a superficial understanding. It should have been obvious to these men by now that each tribe would have its own work to do in taking final possession of the particular part of the promised land that was allotted to them. And that the conquest wouldn't be complete until all the Canaanites had been dispossessed by all of the tribes of Israel. As often as the Lord had said that in Deuteronomy, that should have been clear. What is more, the Lord had never said that all Israel had to do was kick in the door and the Canaanites would scurry and run. There would be battles, years of battles as it happened, and the work would not be done until the land was altogether theirs and the Canaanites were gone. These men had somehow allowed themselves the impression that the conquest which we said is a picture of the Christian life, could be considered complete when the general victory had been won, not when the last Canaanite was seen scurrying out of the promised land. The difficulties they saw before them were, in fact, the difficulties they were supposed to expect. Nothing more, nothing less. If you expect it to be easier than it is, doubts will invariably rise in your mind. Why isn't this working out the way it should? Doubt can come from an insufficient attention to the promises of God. What God was going to do for Israel and how he was going to do it had been thoroughly explained beforehand. The promise that he would grant his people victory over the Canaanites had been repeated again and again, had had been fulfilled again and again. But the men of Joseph had either ignored that word or by now had Let it slip from the mind. The word of God doesn't do us any good lying on the page. It has to be taken up into the heart. And considered then in respect to our present circumstances. In regard to the past, in regard to the future. It's not as if these men could claim that God hadn't given Israel amazing victories. He had. It's not as if they couldn't say that the land was theirs. It was. Canaanites' military power was broken, shattered. But we often cower before enemies we imagine to be so much stronger than we are because we've forgotten what the Lord has already done for us in the past, proving that the promises he has made to us will be kept in the future. Our emotions, unreliable as they so often are, can be the source of doubts as well. Fear, here in the case of the men of Joseph, jealousy perhaps as well, but so often with us, disappointment and frustration, loneliness and so on, it doesn't feel real to us, God's presence, his promise, his power. And so we begin to doubt that those things really are real. That's the challenge of faith, to believe what can't be seen, to believe even sometimes in the defiance in defiance of what can be seen. Doubts can also be stoked by the devil, by our giving way to sin, by spiritual laziness, worldliness, and so on. 
Doubt is in one respect to sin. No one should doubt. No one can justify doubting the word of God. No one has the right to do so. No one can mount an argument that justifies doubt in the word of God. But we are weak in so many ways and doubt is a symptom of our weakness. The fact that we all struggle to some degree with doubt. Doubt of the faith. Doubt about our faith. Doubt about God's love. Doubt about the promises of God. I say The fact that we all doubt is some indication of how great and difficult a thing faith really is. No wonder the Lord's disciples, in a moment of stunning clarity, asked him, Lord, increase our faith. No wonder the man whose daughter was dying answered the Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. We believe, but we know How much more faith we require, how weak our faith so often is, how scarcely it sometimes seems to exist at all. We look at these men of Joseph, griping and cowering, and we see ourselves, don't we? I see myself. This is the uglier side of faith. We can sympathize with the doubting. Jesus did. Remember how gently he dealt with Thomas. But when it's our doubt, we need to be firm. C.S. Lewis observed in regard to his own doubts, I have no rational ground for growing back on the arguments that convinced me of God's existence, but the irrational dead weight of my old skeptical habits, the spirit of this age and the cares of the day, steal away all my lively feeling of the truth. And often when I pray, I wonder if I am not posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced, but I often feel so. So what are we supposed to do with these doubts that beset us? What should the men of Joseph have done? These doubts that afflict all of us some of the time and some of us much of the time. Well, remember and take to heart facts such as these. As Samuel Rutherford put it, your heart is not the compass Christ saileth by. We do not rest our case on how we feel or or even how easily we believe, but upon what God has said and what Christ has done. Your faith may be weak, but remember, it wasn't your faith that was crucified for you. It was the Son of God. Doubt is a fact of believing life. As we learn here even in Joshua, we see believers... Doubting all the way through the Bible. Therefore, if we struggle with doubts, we're doing what believers have always done. If our doubts sometimes confound us and concern us, this itself is in a kind of reverse way a confirmation of our faith. Not least because we doubt as Christians. We're doubting in the way Christians doubt. We're worried about the things only Christians are worried about. We're wishing we could believe more firmly what Christians wish. And then remember this. You will not be able to craft an argument. No no matter how smart you are, no matter how many books you read, you will not be able to craft an argument that proves your doubts to be justified or comes anywhere near proving your doubts to be justified. People have been trying to craft that argument from the beginning of time and no one has come up with one yet. And if you're honest... You know that already. Evolution, the problem of evil, come on. This world is no accident and neither are you. And without God, there's no such thing as evil, so there can't be a problem of evil. Jesus Christ, as the only Savior of sinners, really? Where else is man going to find his salvation except in the heart of his maker? Your personal failures, everyone has those more and worse than anyone knows. But the whole message of the word of God is that it was your failures that brought God the Son, the maker of heaven and earth, into this world for your salvation. And for you who struggle with doubt more often and to a greater degree than most Christians, for you who lie awake at night wondering whether God loves you and whether he has 
really given himself for you and his spirit to you, whether he will keep the promises he has made in his word in your case. Let me finish with this. It's found in the 13th century work of Jean Joinville in his famous Life of Saint Louis, the great uh, French Christian king, Saint Louis. In this work, he reports a conversation between a certain nobleman and a bishop who had come for, the nobleman had come for spiritual counsel because he was consumed by his doubts. He feared he was an apostate because he couldn't overcome his doubts. The bishop gave the man some very good advice about how to think about his doubts and how to work his way through them. But then he said this, You know the king of France is at war with the king of England. You also know that the castle nearest the boundary line between their two domains is the castle of Rochelle. So I will ask you a question. Suppose the king had set you to guard the castle of Rochelle and had put me in charge of the castle of Malory, which is in the very center of France where the land is at peace. To which of us do you think the king would feel most indebted at the end of the war? To the one who had guarded La Rochelle or to me, who had remained in safety at Montlary? Why, in God's name, my lord, responded the nobleman, to me, who had guarded La Rochelle and had not lost it to the enemy. You are in the thick of a fight. That's hardly proof that you're on the wrong side, still less that you're not on the winning side. The devil is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. John Knox reminds us, whom he has devoured, he seeks no more. And if there are times when you feel completely defeated, remember the wise words of a man who struggled with doubt all his life, but gained the victory through that struggle. Rabbi Duncan prisoner of war is not a deserter. And then pray and pray again Martin Luther's prayer for doubters. Dear Lord, although I am sure of my position, I am unable to, to sustain that without you. Help me or I am lost. Amen. Scholars of the Christian hymn, and especially the English hymn, remind us proud Americans of something we should know, that we have contributed very little to the great literature of the English hymn. But most of those scholars will also say there have been a few great hymns written by American poets. And always at the top of the list is Ray Palmer's My Faith Looks Up to the 528.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Oh